Uh, but uh, for now, let's pray. Let's ask God's help uh, as we come to his word. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you speak to us for our good and you tell us that your word will uh, make us wise for salvation. It will correct, teach, rebuke and train us in righteousness. And so, Father, we ask that in your kindness, uh, you would do all those things now. Uh, And as your word uh, confronts us with hard realities, we pray that uh, you would cause us to hear, understand and respond. And please help, Father, me in my weakness. Uh, to not be ashamed, but to be clear and helpful and to proclaim the truth for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as Ali read uh, for us, Mark 9, I wonder if you heard Jesus' threefold repetition uh, towards the end. It is better to enter life maimed than to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Better to enter life lame than than to be thrown into hell. Better to enter the kingdom with one eye than to be thrown into hell where their worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Three times in six verses, Jesus puts on the agenda the uncomfortable topic of hell. But as you heard it read, and even as I say that, I wonder if you actually think it is really that uncomfortable to talk about hell. Because on the one hand, our society, the world we live in, uh, has really kind of just ignored hell as a reality. Uh, Our world has just kind of taken this term to really mean something like unenjoyable or a bad time. Uh, So you might regularly hear phrases like, war is hell, my day was hell, or if you hang out with teenagers, my life is hell. Uh, You see, any idea of hell as a literal, actual place of punishment or suffering is kind of purely left for movies and fantasy. And so we kind of expect to see quaint images like that of The Simpsons, where it's really just a bit of a joke. But from time to time, serious conversations about hell definitely do come up. Uh, And it's almost always uncomfortable, and it's always controversial. Uh, You may recall that during uh, the marriage equality debate, uh, the opposition leader at the time, Bill Shorten, took Prime Minister Scott Morrison to task over his failure to categorically deny that all gay people go to hell, as if somehow the Prime Minister gets to decide that. Uh, But so often it's kind of assumed that if you take hell seriously... Well, ultimately, you must kind of be one of those bigoted religious nutters with their signboards and uh, desperate in their attempts to kind of scare or manipulate people to take you seriously. Uh, And so it's often, I think, that people like us who are here tonight are probably going to be a little bit afraid or perhaps even awkward, uncomfortable with the topic of hell. Because as Christians that believe in the Bible, we we can't kind of dismiss or ignore hell because it just kind of comes up so often in the Bible. But at the same time, we don't really want to be lumped into the sign-carrying crazy group, do we? Uh, Perhaps you've actually dreaded uh, the question that someone might actually come to you and ask, well, do you believe in hell? Or perhaps worse, as I've been asked regularly, uh, will I go to hell? I wonder how you would actually answer that question if someone came and asked that to you directly tonight. Is hell real? What's it like? Who will go there? Does it actually matter? 
But I hope you heard that from what was read to us tonight in Mark 9, the words of Jesus himself, hell is a reality that the disciples of Jesus must reckon with and respond to. Uh, If you were here last week, you might recall that Jesus and the disciples are on this journey through Galilee to Jerusalem, where Jesus will be rejected, suffer and die. Uh, And Jesus uses this kind of final journey with them to do some focused discipleship training, in particular making it clear what the life of a disciple will be and look like as they take up their cross, as they deny themselves and as they follow Jesus. Last week we heard that following the crucified Lord in verses 30 to 41, well that will mean being the servant of all because that is true greatness. But in verses 42 to 50 where we're going to spend our time tonight, Jesus says it will be radical and urgent commitment to holiness, to taking sin seriously as individuals and as a community of believers. And central to why we take sin so seriously is hell. Hell is a reality we have to reckon with. And although it might surprise us, no one actually speaks more about hell than Jesus himself. And so taking hell seriously is kind of not an optional extra for the Christian. And I think Mark chapter 9 verses 42 to 50 alone should convince us of that. But it's all throughout the Gospels and I've given you more references in the outline. Uh, Jesus describes and warns of the reality of hell in Matthew 10. He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, hell is a real place. And the language Jesus uses is both graphic and horrific. Uh, The word translated hell throughout Mark 9 is the word Gehenna. Uh, And it was actually an actual place just outside of Jerusalem to the south, uh, and it was a place in the Old Testament that was called the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, It kind of has a pretty dark history in Israel. It was the place where they sacrificed their own children to Canaanite gods, something that God had expressly condemned and forbidden through the prophet Jeremiah. But in Jesus' time, Gehenna was the location of a very well-known garbage dump. Uh, It was a place where everything from rubbish to human excrement and animal carcasses uh, were dumped and then burnt. It was a constant fire consuming the rubbish of Jerusalem that never went out. It was a location, and I suspect uh, also a smell, that those listening to Jesus would have definitely been very familiar with. And that's the metaphor, that's the picture that Jesus takes and applies to hell. It's an unquenchable fire, verse 43, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, verse 48, quoting the Old Testament from Isaiah 66. You see, the picture is meant to be painful and confronting. We're meant to notice and respond to the extremity of the language. Hell is a place of eternal, ongoing torment. The worm doesn't die and the fire doesn't go out because those present are never consumed. And so Jesus calls it in Matthew 25, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, or eternal punishment. 
or this horrific picture in Revelation 14, that those in hell will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Hell is the real place of God's final and total justice where sin is punished because that's what sin deserves. But as you can imagine, this horrific and confronting picture of punishment for some, even those professing to be Christian, it's just too much. How can such a horrific concept possibly be reconciled with a God of love or a God who is love, a God of mercy? Uh, This is exactly what ABC journalist Lee Sales uh, said led to her giving up on her Christian faith. In the book she's written called On Doubt, she says, how could a loving God send people to hell? Doesn't that seem a bit harsh? I sincerely wanted to be free of my inconvenient questions, but I needed answers based in reason, evidence, and logic. And she goes on to say that she got the answers that she wanted to be free of such a confronting reality. But this desire is nothing new. Uh, A.W. Tozer, a very famous Christian author, an American pastor in the 1950s, he said that the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the conscience of millions. Christians are not immune to that. You will find no shortage of scholars writing books and commentaries or even church leaders preaching week after week who just ignore, change or reject any teaching on hell because it does not sit well with us, our reason and logic. Consider one example. Clark Pinnock is a Canadian evangelical theologian who says it just doesn't make any sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. And you think, well, that's a pretty reasonable argument. And I can sympathize with that. It's the confronting nature of what Jesus is saying about hell is uncomfortable. But do you see the absolutely incredible danger in saying that? Of deciding that what Jesus says cannot be true Because you don't like it. It doesn't sit well with you. Where our view of sin and judgment and justice are shaped by our own ideas and comfort rather than the very word of God. Where ultimately we are the ones who get to decide how serious, how offensive our sin is rather than God himself. And I think we'll do this to our great detriment Because a right view of hell that's given by Jesus will not only shape our attitude and response to sin that we're about to look at, but will also actually be our joy in our salvation. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is the one that speaks so much about hell more than anyone because he knows more than anyone else how truly awful and certain it will be. And that's what he came to save us from. 
That's what Jesus had just told the disciples back in verse 31, that his divine mission will be rejection, to be delivered over to the hands of men to die, and all of this would be for them and for us. So that on the cross he would take the wrath of God that our sin deserves, that would see us go to hell, he takes it from us and for us. Dane Ortland in his little book on hell says, the real scandal of this universe is not that there is a hell deserved by all, but that there is a heaven offered to all. Isn't that what we're about to remember and celebrate at Christmas? That the child who was born, the baby in a manger, was born to save his people from their sins. Is it any wonder then that as Jesus begins his ministry, he clearly, regularly, urgently spoke of hell and what sin deserves and what sin will receive. The reality of hell is confronting, but it takes us to the heart of our Saviour who took our punishment that we deserve to the centre of our assurance that in Christ our sin really has been paid for. It's just what we sang about, that the debt has actually been paid, that the wrath of God was taken by the sinless son. The reality of hell is the black cloth on which the shiny gospel diamond is most beautifully seen. So we must not ignore it. We must not downplay it. It is the reality that has fueled and motivated mission across the world and it should be stirring us to pray for and courage to take opportunities to proclaim Jesus. And so if you are here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, uh, particularly if this is your first time, this is a heavy night for you to come to church. But God in his kindness has brought you to hear of this reality, that hell is the place where God's final justice on sin will be completely fulfilled. Hell is real and it is terrifying, but by God's grace, it is totally avoidable, free for you through the blood of Jesus. But perhaps to our surprise, the conviction about the reality and seriousness of hell is not just seen in evangelism. In fact, Jesus doesn't even talk about evangelism. It will actually be seen in the resolute commitment to take sin seriously. Firstly, in verse 42, by ensuring that we never cause another Christian to fall away on account of us. Verse 42, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Uh, All throughout the section we're going to look at tonight, Jesus uses this contrast of what is better to make a point. You know, better to lose a hand than to go to hell. Or here, better to have a a millstone, which is essentially this huge uh, stone that was used to grind flour, have it put around your neck and then thrown into the sea. Better to have that than to cause another Christian to stumble. And Jesus is talking about all Christians in verse 42 when he uses the phrase, little one. 
It's a term that's used for God's people in Zechariah 13. Uh, and it seems to be a fitting description for being a Christian because it actually highlights our vulnerability as a Christian. Vulnerable to sin. Vulnerable to the negative influence of others. Vulnerable to falling away. And Jesus says that it should be unthinkable, unthinkable that we would cause another Christian to fall away. That is to influence, encourage, enable, or set them on a path of ultimately abandoning their faith in Jesus. And notice Jesus doesn't go into any details about how we might do that, how it could happen. Perhaps he has in mind what took place back in verse 33 where uh, the disciples, the 12, sought to stop another Christian from doing something out of their jealousy. But there are actually any number of ways that this happens. You might immediately think of the damage that false teaching does as it enables or excuses, excuses sin. Maybe it's the failure of church leaders to teach the truth, to discipline or to rebuke. Uh, but I think the most influential and disastrous way I've seen Christians be discouraged and set on a course of abandoning Jesus is actually hypocrisy. The examples are enormous. Uh, I can't help but think of the hypocrisy of church leaders who have abused and bullied and hurt the very ones they were meant to care for. But it would be a mistake uh, to think that verse 42 is a warning just for those kind of high-profile uh, Christian leaders who have failed publicly and spectacularly. This is actually a vital thing for our life together as a church. In my 10 years at least, discipling teenagers, it's almost always been the example and influence of others that is the most significant thing for their attitude towards following Jesus, both for good and for the extremely bad. And this is so significant. The warning is especially for those of us that teach, therefore, Sunday school, that lead a growth group, that do kids club or youth group. Jesus is saying more than you just need to kind of say and teach the right things. But what we say and teach must be the overflow of whole lives that are faithful to Jesus. That we set an example in faith and love and purity. But it's not just for those that serve in youth and children's ministry. It's for our whole life together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to be a whole community committed to holiness and putting sin to death that has concern for others by modelling it in your own life. That's what then Jesus will essentially talk about from verses 43 to 48. And he does so with that repeated pattern. If something's causing you to sin, cut it off, because it's better to than to go to hell. That's the pattern. The life of a disciple is to be radically committed to putting sin to death. And Jesus speaks of the hand and the foot and the eye. And it could be by referencing those three body parts that he's kind of speaking of the different areas of life. Then the hand represents perhaps the very things that we do, the foot represents where we go, and maybe the eye represents something like what we see or what we desire perhaps. I think it's more likely they actually work together to really just paint a picture of all of life. Holiness is what we say and do, it's the decisions we make. It's what we look at, but it's also what we think about. It's our desires and it's our habits. It's about how we use our time and the way we spend our money. 
It's how we relate to others. It's what we do online. It's the kind of worker we are, the way we treat our colleagues, our family, our friend. It's generosity and it's kindness. There's no sphere, no part of the life of a Christian that should not be resolutely committed to holiness and putting sin to death. A commitment that will be seen in cutting off where necessary. Now, clearly Jesus is not calling for self-mutilation. That was forbidden in the Old Testament. He's deliberately using hyperbole. This is a call to drastic, urgent action. The language is meant to make you kind of sit up and think, really? To pay attention and to respond. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, a Christian tonight, I wonder what it is for you. Is it the way you speak to or about others? Is it the way you behave online, whether it's your pornography, your greed, your slander of others? Is it your stealing, your lack of control with drinking, the boundaries you so easily cross with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it the lies you tell because it will protect you or maybe your refusal to reconcile? See, Jesus doesn't want us to be merely reactionary, to kind of know what sin we've done and stop it. He says, no, know that sin deserves, leads us to hell, deserves hell, and is taken seriously because of it. Don't excuse sin. Don't justify it. Don't flirt with it. Don't consider how close you can get before you'll cross that line. He's calling for radical spiritual surgery that addresses not simply when we sin, but actually what will lead us to it, what will enable it, promote it, or cause us even just to be tempted to do it. And so it'll delete the app if you need to, remove your account. You'll ask for help in how to address what you're doing. You might have to get rid of your smartphone. You might need to move your computer to a new location. You might have to put restrictions on the internet or just get rid of it altogether. You might need to confess to your friend what you're doing. You might need to stop going out late with your friends or to be alone with that person as often as you are. And I think you're probably thinking, lots of those sound very inconvenient. How could I do that? But Jesus said it three times deliberately. Cut it off. Cut it off. Cut it off. That's surgery by its very nature. It's meant to be drastic, potentially costly and awkward, and probably very inconvenient. But his point? It's better than hell. Uh, And I think for lots of us, that actually immediately takes us to the very heart of the issue. Do we actually take sin seriously? Would we take the radical action make sacrifices and endure the cost that will make life more difficult because we don't want to excuse or allow or to continue in sin because we're saved by Jesus and we know sin deserves hell. But I also wonder maybe that for some of us, the alarm bells are starting to ring. Uh, You know, perhaps we're ready to protest Kind of sounds like you're saying, I have to stop sinning in order to avoid hell. Kind of sounds like legalism to me. Where's the grace? 
Doesn't Jesus love and accept me just as I am? To which the answer is, of course he does. We're saved by grace. His death alone is what makes us right with God. He has saved us from hell as he takes the punishment our sin deserves on himself. Yes, you are loved and accepted by the Lord Jesus just as you are, but he loves you enough not to leave you there. Because even as Jesus calls for this radical commitment to put sin to death, as you heard in the reading, it is all flowing out of, is grounded in his certain death and resurrection for us in verse 31. A radical approach to killing sin in our lives is the outworking of knowing sin's punishment is hell. That nothing other than the death of Jesus, the perfect son of God, could spare you from hell. And that now, knowing he's taken it for us, we trust him, we live for him. He's calling us to the cross-shaped life of urgent and drastic action so we have nothing to do with the sin that we've been set free from. And this is the language that's consistently across the New Testament, the urgency that comes with it. It's precisely because of the cost of our forgiveness that we have nothing to do with sin. That's what we heard in the second reading from Ali in Colossians 3, isn't it? In those first four verses, Paul grounds the the Colossians in their identity in Christ, that they've been raised with Christ, their life is hidden with Christ, Christ is their life now, and the way they respond to their new identity, verse 5, well, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Don't dabble with it, don't flirt with it, don't mess with it, kill it. If it wriggles its head, kill it again. That's why it's so important. And why verse 6? Why would the Christian do this in Colossians 3, 6? Well, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. You see, to continue to indulge in sin is to invite that wrath. And so the safe, forgiven, justified Christian who is made new in Christ is never blasé about sin. How could we be? How can we on the one hand claim and enjoy the total assurance we have in Christ, but at the same time embrace, even dabble in the very things that nailed him to the cross? It is unthinkable. It should be unthinkable. Our commitment to put sin to death is the expression of, of who is Lord, and so we kill sin, so it won't kill us. And there is an urgency here. The words and language of Mark 9 show us how important this is. For the Christian who thinks they can presume on God's grace and continue in sin, it is totally perilous. And I suspect most of us have actually seen this or know it's true. Where a failure to take sin seriously or even see it as sin has slowly but surely eaten away at the Christian to the point where they are either so guilty or now in stubborn rebellion they just decide they can't keep going. It's what Jesus said in the parable of the sower. 
where though they have responded well initially to the word, at the start, the desire for other things comes in and chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. Or maybe it's Peter's urgent call in 1 Peter 2 to abstain, to fight sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Uh, As Sinclair Ferguson says, there can be no reconciliation between the Christian and sin. No platform for negotiation. If we do not engage in the effort to conquer it, we may be sure it will conquer us. And so the obvious, the important and urgent question for each of us tonight is are we taking sin seriously? Are you negotiating or silencing? Are you cutting off or letting flourish? Do you flee or do you flirt? Now, I know that that is a confronting question. In fact, I have no doubt that right now we have a range of kind of heavy guilt on the one hand and probably supreme denial on the other. From what can feel like small and important victories to the crushing and regular failures. Some have already decided that killing sin is too hard too costly, or that that sin is just too important. And so it's very important that we see that Jesus' urgent call to take sin seriously comes with two great comforts. Firstly, that this is the response. Committing yourself to take sin seriously, it's the response to knowing for sure that Jesus' death is sufficient to forgive all your sins. This is a cross-shaped life in response to that confidence. But secondly, that we're not alone. Holiness is the all-of-life journey that we do, knowing that God is at work and that we're in it together as followers of Jesus. Uh, That's where Jesus goes in verses 49 to 50. Uh, And I confess, these are some pretty tricky uh, verses, perhaps the most difficult in Mark. But after the immediate kind of... uh, extended call to take sin seriously, Jesus says in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, And if you're thinking uh, it's not immediately clear to you what that means, uh, you're in really good company. Uh, It's really confusing. Uh, But I think there is an important Old Testament background where salt and fire are put together Uh, And it comes from Leviticus 2 and Exodus 43, and it's where salt was added to sacrifices and offerings that were made to God. And so a kind of salted sacrifice, as we see in Exodus 30, uh, it's kind of a picture of a pure and holy sacrifice that God accepts. And so Jesus is saying that the life of a disciple is like that of a sacrifice or even of a burnt offering. It is totally given over to God. Discipleship means sacrifice, radical spiritual surgery as we put sin to death. It's what Paul says in Romans 12, that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is true worship. And Jesus is saying that his people, those committed to being faithful to the cross-shaped life, will be purified, will be refined and made holy through fire. 
But while the fire for the one who doesn't take sin seriously is the promise of hell, for those who live holy lives that honour God, fire here is a picture of trial. We see this language consistently in 1 Peter, where Peter promises that believers are going to be refined by trials and fire in chapter 1. That fiery ordeals are the normal expectation for a Christian. But it also has a background in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 13. Uh, We referenced Zechariah 13 earlier because in verse 7, God surprisingly says that he is going to strike his own shepherd, uh, which we're going to see in Mark 14 is talking about Jesus and sending him to the cross. Uh, God is going to strike his own shepherd in verse 7. Then he's going to turn his attention to the sheep of that shepherd whom he calls his little ones in verse 7. The same language that Jesus uses for the disciples in Mark 9. And what's God going to do to these little ones? Well, verse 9 He's going to put them through fire. He's going to refine them as gold. He's going to test them for their good and they will call on him because they are his people. And so as people forgiven by Jesus, we are not just saved from our sin, we are saved to a new life. We are to be holy and pleasing to God. And so Jesus calls us to take sin seriously, to cut off and take decisive action, assured, verse 49, that we are not alone in that process, that we will be salted by God, that he will be at work in us to bring about that change. It's the great assurance that we are actually never powerless and never alone in fighting our sin. This is meant to encourage us and spur us on to action because it's so easy to feel stuck and defeated, but we never are. John Piper says, when it comes to resisting sin, I am not waiting for a miracle, I am acting the miracle. My action is God's action in fighting my sin. My willing is God's willing. Now, it's not a promise that it's going to become easy and simple because of that. We're salted with fire, with trial and challenge and persecution. But it's the total assurance that God is at work in us, through us and for us as we live this cross-shaped life. That's why Jesus continues in verse 50, salt is good. That is the distinct Christ-like life. That's a good thing for us. And it's also non-optional. He warns if salt should lose its flavour, how can you season it? It's the same warning that Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew 5 when he calls us salt and light, salt of the earth. You see, what is saltless salt? It's not salt at all. And so the refusal to take sin seriously, the refusal to live the holy, distinct and cross-shaped life ultimately shows that you're not salt at all. And so this commitment to a holy life, it's not just to be the concern of every individual Christian, but of the whole Christian community. Jesus finishes by assuring us that not only is God at work for our good, but he places us in a community who are in it together. He finishes, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, being salty is best done together. 
Jesus finishes by putting this whole call to a radical cutting off of killing sin in the context of the whole church. He says, be at peace with one another. And the warning for us is that I think we think peace and we think, well, that just means nothing hard or difficult. It's that kind of harmony of live and let live that never challenges, never warns or confronts. But that's impossible. It's clear that that can't be the peace that Jesus has in mind. This is the peace of being joined together, the harmony of a common identity and a common goal that we want to live holy lives for Jesus. It's the shared priority of taking sin seriously. Consider the language of Hebrews 3. He says, watch out, brothers and sisters, that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Or Galatians 6, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore that person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. You see, we're in it together. The cross-shaped life is in a community where we are living for our good and for the good of others. As we heard last week, it's the call to be the servant of all, But this kind of commitment won't be passive. It will be active in checking in with people, following up, praying for them. And it will mean having hard conversations or asking hard questions out of love because it honours Jesus. Because I think we know that people are not going to go from joyfully serving and living faithfully to Jesus one day and then just giving up the next. No, sin's deception is often slow and subtle, but it steadily grows to turn us away. And so we actually need each other when it comes to living the cross-shaped life. We are the gathering of the little ones, vulnerable to tripping, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We can be deceived by sin. We can be absolutely blind to our own poor decisions We will always need others to watch out for us, to restore us gently, to rebuke, correct and encourage. But above all, we need others to keep pointing us to the cross, to ground us in the absolute assurance that we are forgiven by the blood of Christ to sustain us in putting sin to death and, yes, even to warn us of sin's deception when it creeps in. So brothers and sisters, are you living the cross-shaped life? What do you need to do tonight to take sin seriously? Do you need to take decisive action to cut off, to put to death, to stop putting yourself in that situation? Maybe you need to seek help and support because you just feel stuck. Or maybe you know that you won't actually do anything until you get the help and support of someone else because the perceived cost of what you need to do just means you never actually do it. Heed Jesus' call and cut it off. 
Maybe you actually need to have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ where you can see sin's deception creeping in on them. Hebrews 3, brothers and sisters, watch out that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Let's pray and ask God to make us that kind of community. Heavenly Father, we are confronted, confronted with the language that Jesus uses, confronted by the reality of hell. And yet, Father, we praise you, we rest in you, so thankful that as you confront us with hell, we are deeply assured that the Lord Jesus took our sin, the power and penalty of sin, on himself for us. As we've already sung, we thank you that we are free and free indeed because he paid the debt we certainly deserved. But Father, we ask that you would cause each of us now to respond by taking sin seriously, by taking decisive and urgent action for our own good and for the good of others. Please, Father, work by your Spirit to salt us with fire, that we would be holy and pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.